I am delighted to be here, and I mean that. In my age, as my husband says, we're delighted to be anywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> the theme is encouragement, and that's an easy theme because the biggest need in the church and in mission today is encouragement. Encouragement, en courage, is putting heart courage, it's a French word, into you. When we lose heart, when we become discouraged, then that can take you out of faith, it can take you out of mission, it can take you out of church, it can take you out of family. The only thing the devil has to do is discourage us. doesn't need to be big. In fact, it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, not the great big plodding bears in my life anyway. And so he will find a way for the little foxes to eat that fruit in the vineyard of your life. And how he does it is simply to discourage you, to, to get you so you lose heart. And it could be because of family. It could be because of kids. It could be that you can't even listen to me because you came here with so much discouragement in your life. It's hard to hope anymore. It could be because of the economy and because your husband's lost his job or you've lost your job. It could be simply fear that is paralyzing. It could be all sorts of things. It could be that a dream died and you don't know what to do with that. So I just want to start with a little reading to link into this theme of discouragement, something that I wrote when I was incredibly discouraged um, not too long ago. It's called Who Put Out the Stars? Have the stars ever gone out in your life? Is it dark, too dark to read the golden book and find some light to comfort your heart? Well, I understand. Who put out the stars? What child rebelled? Who left home? Who came back a stranger? Who hates you so? He that loved you so? What happened? Who put out the stars in your eyes? Did it happen when a dream died? I had a dream that died. I dreamt that my mother would come to see us when we emigrated to America. That she would come and see where we'd made our home and meet our church people and receive their love. I so wanted to see her just walk into the door of the sanctuary. I would stand in the lobby of the church on a Sunday morning and imagine that the ladies with the gray hair were my mom. Sometimes one, bent and worn, would come through the doors and tears would spring to my eyes and I would catch my breath. Fondly. I wanted her to come so badly it made me sick at heart. Discouraged. I wanted the children to take her out to the pumpkin farm at Thanksgiving and for her to walk in the shopping mall with us. I wanted her to go to a baseball game. I wanted her in my home, in my life, in Christ, in my arms. I wanted her in my new country, for which we'd left two newly widowed mothers, a lifetime of friends, and our England. I had a dream. And while I had my dream, the stars shone. And the years went by, and sometimes the dream nearly came true. But after many years, my dream died because she died, and she never came. She never came to understand why we'd left England for Jesus' sake, and she never really knew how much my hungry heart grieved to leave her behind. 
And it was after that day when the stars went out that he met me on the steps of my soul. And he lit a candle for me in the darkness. And he helped me bury my dream by its light. And he put up a marker, and I could hardly see it by the light of the candle, but I managed to make out the words. Now she understands. And then the lights went on. The stars came out again, and I went on my way, willing to wait till the day he who is the brightest and most shiny day star of all will light up all of heaven for my sweet mother and me. Who put the stars out in your life? When someone puts the stars out in your life, run to the steps of your soul. Be careful you don't trip in the dark. Go heart deep and find him waiting there. He will light a candle for you so you can see to read the golden book together. And you'll find strength to bury the dead dream and not keep the corpse for company. Yes, you will. You'll find strength. And once that's done, you can blow out the candle, and then you'll switch on the starlight again, not only in the sky, but in your eyes, and you'll say, all's well with the world, and it will be. Starlight, star bright, light my life. Day star from on high, do not pass me by. See me shiver in the night, light my light. Amen. So it could be any of a thousand things. But the devil will try to discourage you with a dream that died. Someplace, sometime. And what I want to do is encourage you, put courage into you. Talk about the things that I know very well are in your life that perhaps you've brought with you today. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be in the book of Esther. And I'm going to do profiles of people that were profoundly discouraged for probably bigger reasons than you and I will, please God, ever experience in our life. And what happened? When we think of courage, and we're going to talk about needing courage, finding courage, and then how to encourage others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read about encouragement, a statement that I want to begin with. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, because it says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Or encouragement. God is the God of encouragement. That's what he's made of. He cannot help but encourage us because he is made up of compassion for those who are discouraged and of comfort that we need. So he is the father of encouragement. Number two, he will encourage us for one reason. And guess what? It's not to encourage us. It is in order that we figure out how to get our comfort from God, get back on track for whatever reason, in order that we comfort others. So God does not bless you to bless you. He blesses you in order that through you he will bless others. How? With the comfort you learn to receive. Because there is an art, a spiritual art to receiving the comfort of God. And if you are a servant of the Lord Jesus, then you are servants of others. 
And so the idea is for the comfort that you learn to receive from God, who is the father of all comfort and cannot help but comfort you, <laughs> then the next thing you learn to do is let it flow right through you. And what I love about being an encourager, and the church needs the gift of encouragement more than any other gift at this point, at this time in biblical history. And everybody can do it. This is not a gift in the sense of a specific spiritual gift. This is a necessity that all of us engage in a ministry of encouragement. You know, in a sense, all the teaching that we've had on gifts has sort of worked against us because I have women say to me, um, that's not my gift. You know, there is the gift of giving. Oh, thank the Lord, I don't have that. But doesn't the Bible teach you all must give? And somebody say, well, I don't have the gift of mercy. I'm so glad I don't have the gift of mercy. But are not all of us to be merciful? Or, well, I, I don't have the gift of an evangelist. Oh, I'm so glad. But are not all of us to be witnesses? And so there are things, if you're a disciple of Jesus, a follower of him, that all of us must engage in on a daily basis a lifestyle, and of course, witnessing, for example, all of us must every day be saying, Lord, who is in my life? Make me Philip, meeting that Ethiopian, whoever they are. Keep my eyes open. You can expect that to happen in order that you might share Christ. God is short of workers, so he's going to use you, and he's going to use me. <laughs> he doesn't have too much to choose from. And so here we are. All of us must be ready to share our faith, but some obviously have the gift of an evangelist, right? And so that takes all the excuses away. And if God gives us, and we presume he'll need to, and therefore he will, he wants to, the encouragement to have hope again, to have life again, to be useful again, he is not doing that just for you. It is in order that you might be a blessing. He blesses you in order that you might be a blessing. And that's the second thing. God is the God of all comfort and encouragement. Secondly, it is in order that we should become an encourager, a Barnabas, that's his name, the son of encouragement. And if you read the story of Barnabas and the Acts of the Apostles, you will see how Barnabas, the son of encouragement, saved two of the major people for the church of Jesus Christ. Mark, who wrote the first gospel, he saved through being an encourager. And Saul, <laughs> how could I forget? So he saved Paul, Saul, and Mark, who wrote the first gospel. How did he do that? Well, Paul got disillusioned with young Mark, if you remember, in the story of the gospels, because he quit, he ran away on a very important missionary journey. He just got frightened out of his mind, he ran back to his mother. And so when he and Barnabas came back, minus Mark, time went on, and it was time to go on another missionary journey. Barnabas said, well, let's get young Mark, and Paul said, over my dead body, he's not going with me again. <laughs> and the argument between them was so sharp that Paul and Barnabas parted company over this young man who blew it. But you see, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. And so he took Mark, and he and Mark went on into ministry. 
And Barnabas saved that young man who became the writer of the first gospel. Do you know that if you're reaching a new tribe anywhere in the world that's never heard of God, that the gospel you use is the gospel of Mark? Because it is the most complete, and different reasons that the gospel of Mark is the first Bible book to be translated in the language of the people. Think about that. And all it needed was a man to say, come on, Paul, give him another chance. Paul wouldn't give that second chance because he hadn't got the fact that he should have been that encourager himself. Barnabas saved him. And right in these old age, you can read in one of the epistles, Paul is in prison and he's cold and he's old and he's facing his execution. And he writes and he says, send me Mark. He's profitable to me. Tell him to bring my cloak. Tell him to bring my manuscripts so that he can help me with my writing. And in his old age, Paul reaches out to Mark who becomes his encourager. It's a wonderful story and I want to be a Barnabas and we should want to be Barnabases. Sons of encouragement. And then the other guy he saved was Paul. Because when Paul got saved and he hit the church like a tornado, the church said, whoa, 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 whoa. This man was the one that was killing us all. And who took him to the apostles because they wouldn't meet with him but Barnabas? He says, true, he's, he's really been saved. You can't tell me that guy's been saved. And Barnabas spoke up for him and came and presented him to the apostles. Think about it. You wouldn't have half your New Testament at that point. We could have lost Paul. But you see, Barnabas, son of encouragement, was able to encourage him. And especially with our young people, especially with our college age, especially with this next generation, we should be encouragers. And I think women, by God, are nurturers. You know, this is a generalization, but it's generally true. That God has made us nurturers, encouragers. And what a gift in our femininity in our work with our own kids and with other people's children, that what they need in this generation more than any other generation, and I've worked for God for 50 years, they need encouragement. That's what they need. They need encouragement. And so I look for examples of this in the scriptures. But let's get to what I was supposed to be talking about, (laughs) which is Esther. And I want to do a a brief history of the world, so just (laughs) buckle yourself in, and I'm just going to put this in context for you. This is a short history of the world, okay, up to Esther. Okay, creation, fall, expulsion from the garden, and the race spreads outwards until we get to Genesis 6, pivotal passage. In Genesis chapter 6, God looks down and sees only evil all the time in the minds of men and what comes from that happening in action. And the saddest verse, I think, in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 6. And when God saw that, he was sorry that he made us. And his heart was filled with pain. We broke his heart, folks. Human race broke the heart of God. In Genesis 6, we've only just begun. The chance, the second chance has only just started to be there. 
And God says, I'm going to destroy. I'm going to start all over again. I'm just going to crunch up the world and start another universe, etc., etc. But, marvelous verse, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When you get to heaven, go find Noah. (laughs) It's the reason we're here. If there hadn't been one man, and there was only one man, his grandfather, of course, Enoch, walked with God. This is the grandson, Noah. And so by the time God is ready to destroy the human race, starting in, we have Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And for that reason, God said, all right, I start again. God is a God of beginnings. God is a God of new creations. And so he started again with one man and his family. So we have expansion of the race from Noah, the rainbow of promise. We have Abraham and the call that through you all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. We have Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Egypt, slavery, deliverance, Moses, Joshua, conquest, promised land, Israel rebels against God, judges, Ruth, Kings, Chronicles, and then prophets, godly remnant, etc. The false prophets won the day. Israel rejects the Lord, worships Baal. Judgment, 70 years, Esther. That's the context. That's where she is in biblical narrative. Okay. And so... She lived in the judgment period when God, from Noah to Israel's rejection of the Lord and the rejection of the prophet's message of hope and reconciliation and let's start again, 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 the false prophets are listened to and God says, that's it. Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, comes 70 years. And somewhere as Jerusalem is sacked and raised to the ground and the temple is destroyed was a little girl called Esther. And her mommy and daddy were murdered. How? We're not told. And we probably don't want to know. But she was chained up with the rest of them behind the chariots and Mordecai took his little cousin, they believe, and adopted her as his own on the long trek into servitude. We don't know where they ended up initially. It could have been by the river Sheba. You can read about that in Psalm 137, where the Babylonians were just torturing them into making these cities for Pharaoh, and they were crying out, and the Babylonians were tormenting them. Go on, sing us one of your little happy clappy songs from Zion. What's the matter with you? Let's have a hymn. And they said, how can we sing a song in a foreign land? And they hung up their harps on the weeping willow tree. They hung up their joy. They lost all hope. Lost all hope. We don't think that Mordecai and Esther ended up in that particular camp What most people believe, or maybe they started there, they ended up in Persia. Because on the world scene in this narrative, the Babylonians were fading and Persia was rising. And eventually Persia took over the world and Nebuchadnezzar was gone. 
Babylon was gone. But they certainly meet us in the scriptures in the capital city of Persia under Xerxes, who was the king of Persia, and at that point, the king of the world. So the world has changed, and now Persia rules that world. And some of the Jews were either taken or were permitted to spread and go to other places. And Mordecai and Esther ended up in the capital city, and Mordecai ended up in the palace itself in the employ of King Xerxes. And that's how the story opens. And the story opens, and I'm sure you know the story of Esther. It's a fabulous story. Hollywood has not discovered it, although there is a Hollywood film that has been made by Christians out there. It's great to watch with your family, called A Night with the King. Very, very good by Christian actors and people in Hollywood who made the story of Esther. Very absolutely accurate. doesn't apply anything, but it's, it's the story of Esther. And so... In chapter 1, the scene opens with this party because the king of Persia, who rules 127 provinces, which is the known world, and has conquered them all, brings in his puppet leaders, the satraps, they're called, for a party, and it lasts 187 days. I can't remember how many. I mean, that's months. Work it out. I needed a calculator to figure it out. And so the party begins, and he's showing off like Solomon did. He's showing off all his wealth and his power to the leaders and the people he's put in place in all the dominion that he's conquered. Now, let me tell you about the characters in this book. There is Xerxes, who was one, he was a monster. He was a sort of mixture of Stalin and Hitler, all rolled up into one. He was horrible. But his wife measured up to him. And it is said in the ancient manuscripts that he was frightened of his wife. So you get a picture of Vashti and the sort of lady, well, you can't call her a lady, that she was. So you have Xerxes and you have Vashti. And so all the time, this 187 days or whatever was going on with with his party, she threw one for the women and there was drink and drink and drink and all of this. And in the middle, towards the end of this, when he added everybody in the palace and threw them a bash, and everybody's drunk, and of course he has all the men, he gets this wonderful idea of inviting Vashti to come and undress. And the phrase is, dance like a monkey for the men. And so he sends his chamberlain and another couple of guys to tell her to come and show off her, I believe, beautiful body. And she says, not on your life. Pivotal point in the Old Testament. No queen had ever said not in your life to a king Xerxes before this. But she was a match. She said, not in your life. Can you imagine the shame of that for the king? Can you imagine the chamberlains coming and say, Your Majesty, she won't come? I mean, well, immediately his counselors come round and say, Well, you need to divorce her on the spot, which he did. And, sir, you need to show some sort of punishment because our wives might say, Not on your life, <laughs> if you don't. And so. He was absolutely furious. In fact, again, the word is he snorted like a wild bull 
gives you the idea. He was not pleased. Not pleased. So Vashti's gone, and he gets over. He has these fits of rage. And, of course, he's sorry after a few weeks that Vashti is gone. And so the counselors say, don't worry, we'll find you another. And so this beauty pageant begins, and they go out into the city, and there, right under their nose, is a little slave girl called Esther. Absolutely gorgeous, inside and out. And she, along with many, many, many other women, were brought into the eunuchs and put in the harem. And it says, and it's so poignant to me, that Mordecai walked every day past the harem to see how she was. Think about that. Absolutely frightened out of his mind, absolutely devastated that Esther had been taken into this situation, never to walk out of it again. And so one of the things you have to realize is that God's name is never mentioned in this book in the Bible. In fact, there was huge controversy about putting it in the scriptures and has been. And and when they had all the councils of the early church, it always came up. Why would we put this historical story, a true story, because God is never mentioned. But you know what I love about the book of Action? He is all over it. And when you are discouraged, remember that he is in the shadows. God is in the shadows. God is in the circumstances. God is in the scriptures. God is in the subconscious. Even though his name, the obvious, is never there. And that's encouraging. And what you have to do when you are living in the dark, as she was for most of her life, what you have to do is look for him. You have to look for him in the circumstances. You have to look for him in the shadows. You have to look for him in the scriptures. And you'll find him there. Helmut Thielicke, a very famous Lutheran theologian at the end of the Second World War, ministering in Stuttgart, which was being leveled by the Allies in his beautiful hospitalist church, cathedral in the middle of Stuttgart, began to teach the Lord's Prayer stanza by stanza in the last seven weeks of the war as it finished with that blitz of that place. He started with 3,000 people and he ended with 32 of his congregation seven weeks later. His church was gone. He preached the last stanza of the Lord's Prayer in the choir stalls. That's all that was left to 32 people. And that was that wonderful sermon he preached. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You should get that book if you can ever find it. It's called The Prayer That Spanned the World. And he says in that book, the human race is like a child lost in the forest, crying out, Father, are you there? Human race is like a child lost in the forest, crying out, Father, are you there? And he says, God is always there. He has a right to say that, that man. How can you see God in that devastation? How can you see God in the atrocities of nature that happen and are allowed to happen by the God of all creation? How can you see God in the shadows, in the darkness? That's what the book of Esther is about. I have a theory, and the older I get, I think I'm right, is you can only see the will of God in retrospect. So one of the only good things about growing old is that you have history. In fact, I have more history than future. And one good thing about that is you can look back. 
I have a wonderful friend who worked with her in mission for 13 years. And last time I saw her, which was just after her husband died, I was staying with her. And I said, Joan, she needed to talk. I, I said, just talk to me. As you look back on 70 years nearly of ministry and mission, what do you see? And she said, well, I'll tell you what I see. And what I say is, oh, that's why. And she began for one of the most incredible hours of my life, which I will never forget, telling me her story. A, a sad story, a terrible story of pain and suffering. Father was killed. Her mother had six children. They had to go to the poorhouse in Northern Ireland. So she spent time in that poorhouse. And then the mother somehow got four jobs and got them back and how they had no money, and how her mother fed them, and all of this. Well, then, of course, the war was over. She grew up. She actually became a top nurse. And, and then she met Major Ian Thomas, who was a major in the army, and they fell in love, and they married, and she ended up the head of the mission that we served for 13 years. Street work. Disadvantaged children. And what happened was she bought a castle, a wonderful story. <laughs> Holds 300 people. It's acres of land. That's called Cape Mary Bible School and Mission. And she did that while Major was still at the end of the war in Berlin, and he sent her to an auction to buy this castle. It's 23. How about that? And to her horror, <laughs> and she ended up with this castle. And it became the center to minister to ex-Nazi youth. That's how we began after the Second World War, and on into mission for teenagers all over the world. And she's ended up with this castle that's been used by the army that didn't have one bath in it. It holds at least 300, 400, 500 kids. It's absolutely mammoth, with nothing to use. And she had to feed them, and they didn't have any money, of course. And suddenly she thought of her mother feeding six kids. And she said, oh God, that's why I know how to do this. And she started to do all the things that her mother had done for six kids. And then Major Thomas, like my husband, for that mission, traveled for the mission, was never home, months and months on end. And she thought, I'm left with the castle and 300 kids and you know, and no man. And then she thought back to her father dying. And she said, oh, that's why. I know how to do this. I know how to do this. You should do your own, oh, that's why list. Because you can only see sometimes the will of God in retrospect. And where he was in those shadows in that darkness. Because it doesn't appear he's there when you're going through something like that. One of our missionaries, you might probably know the story of the three missionaries that were captured in Colombia, and they didn't know whether they were dead or alive for eight years. Do you remember? Three new tribes missionaries. The whole world prayed for that. Well, two of them were ours from our church. 23-year-old, 21-year-old Mark Rich, they were ours. And Tanya Rich would come year by year back to our missions conference and give a report, no 
They've not been found. We don't know whether they're dead or alive. Da 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 da. And the story played out, and in the end, the Red Cross under Elizabeth Dole went in with soldiers and found the graves. Eight years later. Not to know your husband's dead or alive, but to know he's in the hands of guerrillas for eight years. Okay. Sort of grows you up in a hurry. Stuart and I went to do that New Tribes conference in Florida where one of their headquarters and they gather all their missionaries and they have a conference. And we did that conference and we stayed with Tanya Rich. Now this is 12 years later, about. And so it's the first time we'd had face-to-face for a long time and we were delighted to hear that God had brought her together with a wonderful missionary kid who'd grown up, he's in business now, and her two children that were babies when this happened are now in their teenagers and going into college. And So we were catching up and we were meeting this new husband. And I was just jumping up and down inside. God, you are so good to do this for Tanya. And as she introduced her new husband, she said, and I was absolutely speechless, um, I have to tell you that Frank has just been diagnosed with cancer. I was speechless. And she says, pretty serious, you know. And I said, tell us what she did. And it must have been my face. And she put her hand on mine. Do you know what she said? It's all right, Jill, I know how to do this. Oh, my word. It's all right, Jill, I know how to do this. And she looked back and said, oh, I know how to do this. It's all right. And all the comfort she received from God through that agony of eight years, she just applied to the waiting and the uncertainty and all of that. I know how to do this. Oh, that's why. That's why. And has this Esther put in this incredible position for life, becoming queen, hearing about the plot against her people? You know the wonderful story here. And Mordecai says, Esther, that's why. You know how to do this. You know how to be in this incredible situation. If you ever want to know how Esther felt, get an apocrypha, which is extra-biblical material, history, and read chapter 14 and 15 of Esther in the apocrypha. And you won't be able to put that down. It's not included in Scripture for different reasons, but it is historically true. And so the apocrypha is extra-biblical material like Josephus's letters about the early church. It fills in the color, the political scene, the things that weren't considered necessary to tell the story in the scriptures. And the horror of finding herself chosen is in those chapters. And think about it. And so here she is, and she's drawing on the comfort of God in her impossible situation in the past. Oh, she knew how to do this. Knew how to do it. And the whole thing is an incredible illustration to me 
of even though God is not in the obvious, you have to look for him in the circumstances, in the timing of this story. God is a God of timing. Do you know that's one of his names? God only wise, the only wise God in Isaiah chapter 40, you'll get that name. God of understanding, that's all a Hebrew name for God. And it means God of timing. It means that God knows the exact time to relieve his people. The exact time to intervene. The exact time to use the circumstances he allows to happen for his purposes and his good. He is the God of timing. And if there's a story in the Bible that you can read through, read through Esther and see the incredible timing the circumstances coming together, the perfect circumstances coming together. For example, she was just the right age to be chosen to be one of the people in the harem. You know, it could have been off four years and she wouldn't have been chosen. Perfect timing, perfect age. She's in the perfect place for what God has in mind for the big plan. You know, so often Romans 8 is misquoted All things work together for good to them that love God. What we think that means, wrongly, is all things work together for my good. It's not talking about that. It's talking about his good. And actually, the word is the ultimate good. God's plan. God's cosmic plan. And God is working the black threads and the golden threads together for his plan. What is his plan? That the earth might be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the original. You know, that's the Ephesians thing. One day he will gather everything and everything will be submitted. to. That's the plan. Okay. So it won't be for our good, I can assure you, but it will be for his good and that brings comfort. I don't know how all this is going to work, but I happen to be in a really dark place in the tapestry. Yes, you do. Be encouraged. It's all part. I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this for the ultimate good of my big plan. And we have the choice to be involved in that, to cooperate with God. And for our sake, God gives us the chance. Do you want to be involved? Want to cooperate with me? Do you want to play a part? And that was Esther's choice. Because when Haman, the Jew hater, came on the scene, Mordecai said to Esther, can't you see this timing? You're the queen. (laughs) At just the right time when this monster has appeared and is going to wipe out the Jewish people and try and interfere with God's cosmic plan. You happen to be the favored wife at that point of the king. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. And as the story plays out, you see the timing, 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 because what happened was Haman wanted to be next to the king, and the king liked him, and so he said, okay, so I'll make you next to me. What do you want? And he said, well, I'd like you to tell your people, and so put me on a white horse and take me through and declare um, this is my choice, etc., etc. And so King Sarah, if that'll help you, sure, if that's what you want, do what you want. So they got the white horse and they put Haman on it and they started to lead him through declaring this is the man 
the king has chosen, etc., etc. And everybody had to fall flat on their face. That was the other thing Haman wanted. Everybody, as soon as the horse appeared and he appeared, they go down. And so he's coming out the palace door, and there is a Jew standing at the door called Mordecai. And everybody else is flat on the floor. And Mordecai will not bow his head to anyone but his Lord. And so Haman's day is really ruined by this. <laughs> and he still goes on his horse, but it doesn't matter. He may as well not go because he just gets in. Inf- Who's that guy? Well, he's Who's Mordecai. He's one of those sniveling Jews. And you know there's a lot of those in the city and they have freedom and they're spreading and they're getting prosperous and all of this. And Okay, so immediately his fury does not just range on Mordecai's head but the whole of his people, right? And so he goes to the king and he talks the king into this edict of destroying them on a certain day so he can get revenge. And he goes home and he mouths off to his wife and all his friends and his wife said, well, if it would help you, just, you know, why don't you build a stake in the backyard and impale him on it? Good idea. That makes me feel really good. <laughs> and so Haman puts the cross. It was a cross, but it was the cross that most people died on, not the one with the crossbeam that we see in the pictures, but the impaling cross, the sharp point, and they just impaled you on it. That was the cross. And so he puts a cross in the backyard and feels better and has his supper and really feels this is a good day. And so then he gets all excited because he's going to get the king to get this to happen. And he can't sleep because he's so excited about this impaling stuff. So he gets up early and he goes to the palace early. Look at this timing. The king has not been able to sleep that night. And so what do you do when you can't sleep? You read a book. So he looks around and he sees the annals or the things that have happened in his kingdom, people who have saved his life or served him well. And he's reading this book and he comes across a little incident about Mordecai who has actually saved the king's life because there was a plot to assassinate him. And it's been written in this very book. Do you know how many books there were? But just the right book on just the right night. So he's reading this and he thinks, you mean... Mordecai, who's Mordecai? I never did anything for this man. And at the right time, here in the dawn, because Haman can't wait to get there to do this permission for impaling, comes Haman, early to work, very early to work. And the king is told, Haman's in the garden, what's he doing this early for? Well, tell him to come in. So he comes in, and the king's reading this book, and he says, Haman, what would you do for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks, well, Who else but me? (laughs) Of course, he would think that, wouldn't he? And he said, I would put him on... He's got a thing about white horses. (laughs) I'd put him on a white horse, and I would lead him through the city saying, this is the man the king delights to honor. (laughs) And the king said, that's a great idea. Go and do it for Mordecai the Jew. (laughs) What a story! (laughs) Timing! I mean, the king could have slept that night. No, 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 for God is in the circumstances and God is in the suffering and God is using all the things to weave the eternal plan. 
And when you read the book, you have to think about your own life. And say to God, help me to look at whatever mess happened to me. Help me to see you in the shadows, find you in the darkness. Help me to see you in the scriptures. What does that mean? Well, Mordecai had trained Esther in the history of the Jewish people. He had trained her in the scriptures, in the scrolls. What does that mean? Well, it means she knew the prophecies of Daniel. Okay? That would be the piece of scripture that Mordecai probably mostly came back to, how Daniel the slave was elevated by God himself to be the most influential person under Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel wrote about lots of things. And he wrote about his dream, about the statue, and the kingdoms that would be destroyed, the head, Nebuchadnezzar, the neck, the torso, Persia, and the legs, Rome, and Greek in there. And then the dream, if you remember, of the stone coming, the little stone and hitting the feet of clay, Roman Empire. And then the stone, the boulder, getting bigger and bigger until it filled the whole earth, and Daniel's interpretation. She knew that up by heart. And so she saw God in the scriptures and realized she was living in the torso part of that dream. Torso part of that dream. And so the kingdom was known to her. God's plan, his kingdom plan. And Mordecai says, you have to go and ask the king to save our lives. He doesn't know you're a Jew. I told you to keep quiet about that. You obeyed me as you have from a child. Now it's time. God has put you in exactly... Unless you go and plead for us, God's people are going to be wiped out. And you know the story. And then read the Apocrypha to see what happened as she walked up to the king, forbidden unless he called her and held out the golden scepter. It says in the Apocrypha she fainted three times. But she did it. And what I love about Esther and what she's given to me is her example of doing it scared. Just doing it frightened, out of her mind, but doing it. Because I so often hear Christians say to me, well, if God gives me the courage, I'll do it. If God makes me healthy, I'll go. And we don't get it. All we need is enough health. All we need is enough courage. This was born into me as a youth evangelist, a street evangelist, all those years, 13 years. I worked with kids on the streets. I'm a street preacher, if you want to know what my gift is. I can't remember a time I was out on the streets when I wasn't frightened out of my mind. I cannot remember one. But I learned, God taught me right at the beginning of that work, to do it frightened. And I remember one specific place I was standing outside. It was called the Floral Hall. And guess who was playing? 17 years of age, the Beatles, in that dance hall. A thousand kids. Some of them were just hitting their heads on the floor till they were bleeding, you know, as they went into this frenzy as the groups came out. It was that era. It was Beatles era. It was the 50s, 60s. And I remember 
taking Bible students down to do outreach on the streets. And I'm a very bossy sort of person, so I'd boss them all into getting going. Well, you go over there, and you go into that pub, and you do this. And I ended up doing nothing myself. <laughs> and I said I'd pray for them. Well, that was nice, right? <laughs> and so I'm standing here with nothing to do outside this floral hall. And God said to me, well, what are you going to do for the rest of the evening? And I said, I'm going to pray, you know. Well, that's nice, Jill. And I knew immediately what I needed to do. I needed to get myself inside that place. And I was so paralyzed with fear, I could not move. So I just kept praying for courage. I said, Lord, if you expect me to get myself in there, you, you need to give me... It's not fair to, to ask me to do something without giving me courage. And then I began to think, what am I asking for? What is courage? What was I waiting for? Was I waiting for a oof or a mm or <laughs> think about it? And I began to think, what is courage? So I'm having this little conversation with God, still rooted to the spot in fear outside this place. And I got it. Courage is doing it frightened. Because it's the right thing to do. That's what courage is. Enough courage. Paralyzed courage is sin, a paralyzed action. Whatsoever that is not of faith is sin. But I got it too that night that God wasn't ever, and he never has, give me all courage. So I am so at peace. I mean, what's victorious about that? You know, if you're full of peace and full of power. But the brave thing is to do the right thing, frightened. So you pray for enough, enough health, just enough money, just enough. And God gave me enough. And somehow I got myself inside the door. And what I discovered was the courage I needed, enough courage, was waiting for me after obedience. And what we do is pray for whatever we're praying for, this supernatural something and not until, out of our weakness, out of our inadequacy, out of our fear, whatever it is, we take the first step physically. We put ourselves physically in that pain or that problem, etc. And I can't remember getting inside. I cannot remember how I got inside, but I got inside. And there was this great big bouncer. And he said to me, what do you want? You from the social services or the police? And I said, no. And I heard myself say, take me to the manager. And I thought, why do we want to go to the manager, Laura? <laughs> and you know, I knew what to say. I knew what to do. It was there. It was all waiting for me. But I had to go in without it. And so we got to the manager. His name was Alan. He's sitting there. He said, what do you want? What are you here for? Same thing. And I said, well, I thought, well, I'll make sure it doesn't let me do what I think God wants me to. And so I said, well, what happens when this din stops and you have an interval with this noise? And he said, well, we have an interval. I said, what happens on the platform? And he said, well, nothing happens on the platform. What are you talking about? And I heard myself say, <laughs> would you give me your platform? And I prayed, God, make him say no. No, God. <laughs> and he said, thankfully, no. And then he said, until. 
and my heart dropped. And he said, until you tell me what you want it for. And so I thought, well, I'll really make sure. So I said, I want to tell these kids, over a thousand, that there's a God that's real, and a Bible that's true, and a power to get them off drugs, etc. And he said, sit down. If you can tell me the answer to all those questions, and I've waited all my life to find the answer, you can have my platform. And I led him to the Lord. I mean, I'm sitting there watching this happen as if I'm out of body. And I don't know how many years the Bible students and we took that opportunity uh, every Saturday night. But it was a glorious 10 years of ministry in the floral hall. And then, of course, we got the idea and started our own coffee bars and all of that. And that was the beginning of the coffee bar movement in Europe. But it started with a very, very frightened, very ordinary woman, a young mother with three kids sleeping at home, 12 o'clock at night. I mean, it's ridiculous. Frightened. I was in another era. I'm high-born. My home was a manor house. And here God takes somebody like me, and he gives me a love that won't quit for kids. To this day, And just a woman that will say, I'll do it. I'll do it scared. I'll do it frightened. I'll do it, Lord. And then somehow the willpower comes. Somehow you have what it takes to do it scared, to do it. And as you do it, as he promises, he doesn't call the equipped. He equips the call. Will you remember that? He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the call. And he only equips as we take those steps of faith. And that's what Esther did. She did it scared. She did it without the courage. And as she went, she got stronger and stronger. Read the last two chapters of Esther. They're hysterical. I mean, she is just running this whole show. Even the king amusedly says, Is there anybody left in my city, Esther? <laughs> All these people who are going to kill your people, now they're all dead in the street. <laughs> what else do you want? What else do you want? And she just gets stronger and stronger and stronger, right? But read the Apocrypha. She had to take the first step. God is in the circumstances, and God is in the shadows, and God is in the scriptures encouraging us with hope and prophecy and whatever we need. Where do you see yourself in the story? Where do you see yourself in the story? What has God brought you here to learn? You know what's for you. Now, will you respond?